we're about to enter, well, we really have entered the, the craziest, uh, you know, hustle and bustle time of year. Because from now until about December 26th, it's Christmas all day, every day. You know, it's going to be Christmas music on the radio. There's going to be, I don't know if anybody listens to radio anymore. Uh, everybody's on Spotify or Apple Music, that sort of thing. I don't know. But but uh, for the next three or four weeks, what I one of the things I know is that it's going to be a very busy time for, for most of us here. Your calendar is going to fill up with Christmas parties. And if, if you have kids in school, you're going to have Christmas concerts that you're going to have to attend. And, and you're going to have to take care of all your Christmas shopping and there's Christmas this and Christmas that, and there's so much that you got to get done. And, and I'm not here to criticize that. It's just, it's a, it's a fun, it's a beautiful time of year. I'm not criticizing that at all. I'm just simply making an observation. But this morning though, what I want to do as we head into this Christmas season, I want to help us, uh, t- just step back and think about how we can make sure that the meaning of Christmas doesn't get lost in the shuffle because it's so crazy that it's easy to get our eyes in the wrong place and to forget what Christmas, Christmas is about. And so I want to, I want to uh, talk about that today. To, the title of today's message is Make Room. Make Room. And I, I hope it'll just cause us to pause and think for a minute and help us to be maybe a little bit more deliberate uh, in our celebration of Christmas this year. Before we get in the Word, would you just bow your head together with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that without the voice of the Spirit speaking to us, the next few moments are completely worthless. No one needs to hear the wisdom of Dave. Nobody came to hear helpful hints for happy living. All all of us in this place need to hear from you today, God. So Father, I'm asking for you to speak. And Lord, I'm asking that you would help us to listen, help us to hear your voice, help us to slow down enough today to be able to hear what you're saying to each of us, Lord God. And then Lord, More than that, more than just hearing, more than just learning, help us to be able to apply it to our lives in such a way that it changes who we are. And I believe you for all of this, and we pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. A small boy was bitterly disappointed at not being cast as Joseph in the school nativity play. And he was was instead given the minor role of the innkeeper. And, uh, And throughout the weeks of rehearsal, he just brooded on how he could avenge himself on his successful rival. And so the day of the performance finally came and Joseph and Mary made their entrance and at the right time during the play and, and they knocked on the door of the inn and the innkeeper opened it a fraction and, and eyed them coldly. And Joseph, the, the little boy who played Joseph, pleaded. He said, can you give us room and uh, board and lodging for the night? And then he stood back expecting the uh, waiting for the expected rebuff knowing that the innkeeper was supposed to say there's no room but the thing is the innkeeper had not pondered all those weeks for nothing and so to get back at joseph and try, try to throw him off kilter he flung the door open wide and he beamed genially and he and he cried come in come in you shall have the best room in the house well there's a pause and Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. And, and then with great presence of mind, the, the young man playing Joseph turned to the girl playing Mary and said, hold on, I'm going to take a look inside first. And he, and he peered past the innkeeper and shook his head firmly and announced, 
I'm not taking my pregnant wife into a place like that. Come on, Mary, we'll sleep in the stable. Of course, that's not how it happened. We're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that there was no room in the inn. Let's read it together, Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for, th for them in the inn. Perhaps there is no phrase in all of the gospel story that is so clearly prophetic of the, of the whole of the life and the ministry of Jesus as those short, obscure words of Luke when he says, there is no room for them in the end. It would seem almost that Luke sensed the dramatic appropriateness of those words uh, to, to everything that was to follow, the, the witness to the fact that Jesus began his life by being crowded out. And, and this was to happen all throughout his ministry, and, and for that matter, all throughout history, even after his life on this earth, there was no room for Jesus in the end. And I'm sure that the birth of a child in a, in a stable is the most familiar of all stories in literature. Everybody has heard it. Everybody knows the story of Jesus. It's told in more homes and more languages than any other story ever penned. And the artistry in it is in its simplicity. Imagine this. Dusk is settling down on the Judean hill, hills on the little town of Bethlehem with its homes and hostelry overtaxed by the edict of a tax-minded ruler. Tandalite flickers in the windows and from the rooftops like fireflies in the evening. As the home folks and the visiting relatives from afar bed themselves down for the night, the stars peep out one by one from the deep purple sky. The bark of a shepherd dog sounds up from the valley and from the village inn there's the sound of coarse Roman laughter mingled with the strains of subdued music. Out of the dust of the road comes a weary traveler pulling a tired and unwilling donkey. Upon the donkey sits the man's wife, more tired even than the beast. A conversation takes place in the light streaming from a doorway and a gesticulating innkeeper says those words, no room. You don't have to hear him. You can see him saying it with a shrug of his broad shoulders because there's no other word to say. But then there is a gleam of a lantern along a footpath and by its light, a glimpse into a stable cave where the animals are kept. And then there in the night, a cry is heard. And a child is born and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, that inn, though we don't know the name of it and we and, and it's not a specific inn that we can point to the that particular inn has become maybe the most famous of all inns, not because of what happened there, but because of what might have happened and didn't. That inn has become a continuing symbol of an, a, 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 an, an internal parable, of, in a sense, of the human soul. 
why is life so much like Bethlehem's inn? Why is there no room in so much of it for the Lord of life? Why did he begin life in a stable shut out? You know, even the story itself in there, there are some hints of the reason why. The first, Jesus was shut out by preoccupation for one thing. The most, the most obvious reason of all, obviously, is that there was no room, that, that there was no, the reason there was no room in the inn was simply that the rooms were all, all occupied. That's simply what it means. So every space was already filled. They, those who had arrived before dusk had settled in for the night. And, and listen, you know, the innkeeper sometimes I think he gets a bad rap, and, uh, but I just can't help but feel a little bit bad for the innkeeper. He was, I don't think he was a mean man. I don't think he had any ill will toward the, the family there. I mean, he was just running a hotel. He was in the business of renting out uh, lodging and other people got there first. There was no room for more and that was that. You know, the Lord Jesus may be shut out of the end of our hearts by similar casual, familiar, and plausible circumstances, preoccupation by the things that get there first. I mean, we don't, we don't need mean to be irreligious. We, we have no ill will toward Christ. We don't hold anything against Him. It's just simply that so often we have filled up all the space uh, in our lives with other guests, with other matters, pressing and important matters, our, our business, our social life, our responsibilities. The, the place is just full. There's no room. You know what happens too often is that Christ only gets the leftovers. I don't know about you, but my favorite part of Thanksgiving might be the leftovers. Anybody here enjoy leftovers? You're good people right there. Anybody that likes Thanksgiving leftovers, you're my, my kind of folk. You're, you're my tribe. But, you know, while I like tr- leftovers, the thing is, what we tend to do sometimes in our lives is we try to give God just the leftovers. A, a, a poet put it in a verse that makes it plain enough. The innkeeper says, I only did what you have done a thousand times or more when Joseph came to Bethlehem and knocked upon my door. I did not turn the Christ away or leave him there bereft. Like you, I only gave to him whatever I had left. We often live our life the way we want to. We do the things we want to. We spend our money the way we want to. We, we just do our thing. And then what we do when it's all said and done, then we just try to give God whatever is left over. But I'm here to tell you something. While I love leftovers, God does not want your leftovers. God doesn't want your leftovers. He wants your best. He wants your first. That's how we honor him. He he wants the best that you have to offer him. And when you make Jesus a priority in your life and you give him your best, I'm here to tell you that when you do that, he will bless you beyond measure. How close to home that strikes. How how easily we, we recognize that, that very id in our lives, that we are preoccupied. It actually reminds me of a story, of a story I heard, uh, actually I read by uh, Louis Palau. He tells the story of a wealthy European family who decided to have their newborn baby baptized, as, as some uh, religious traditions do. And, and uh, so they were going to have this infant baptism in their enormous mansion, and Dozens of guests were invited to the event and they all arrived in their latest of fashions. And, and after depositing all their elegant coats and furs and all of those things on a bed in an upstairs room, the guests were entertained like royalty. And pretty soon the time came for the main purpose of the evening 
which was the infant's baptism. And when they asked for the child, no one seemed to know his whereabouts. So panic ensued and as they desperately searched for the baby. And in a few moments, though, the baby was found. You'll never believe where the baby was. It was buried underneath all the coats and jackets and furs. And the very object of the day's celebration had been forgotten, neglected, and nearly smothered. Oh, if that isn't a picture of what Christmas is like in our, in our culture today. That the very object of our celebration sometimes gets buried underneath all the traditions and the trappings and the decorations. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But we have to make sure that we aren't preoccupied with unimportant things and, and have no room for Jesus. How many times have we neglected Jesus and smothered him with our preoccupations? Another reason why there's no, there was no room was, was that Jesus was shut out because nobody recognized the importance of the moment. This sounds familiar too. The innkeeper had, if the innkeeper had known the identity of his guest, I'm pretty sure things would have been different. If he had known who this baby was that was about to be born, I think he would have handled things different. If, if he had even just had the inkling that this little child born in the stable would literally split history in two, B.C. and A.D., and that for centuries to come, the world would date its letters from that silent night. I, I feel sure things would have been different if he'd realized who was about to be born. You can be sure that if he knew, if he had known those things, that that child would not have been born in a stable. That child would not have been laid in a manger. You, you can be sure that he would have made a place in the end. In fact, I think he probably would have said, listen, you take our, my, my, our bedroom. My wife and I will find some place to sleep, but you are the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. You're God breaking into creation. You come and have the best room in the house. I feel sure that's what he would have done. He would have welcomed him as an honored guest. In a poem uh, called The Inn That Missed Its Chance, the innkeeper explains the matter to his friends. This is what he says. How could I know that they were so important? Just the two. No servants, just a workman sort of man leading a donkey and his wife thereon. I saw them, not myself. My servants must have driven them away. But had I seen them, how was I to know? There was a sign, they say, but I had no time for stars. And there were songs out on the hills. hills but how, could I, how was I to hear? amid the thousand clamors of an inn. The innkeeper just didn't know. He did not recognize the, the impact of the moment, the importance of that moment. And you know what? In the same way, we can miss it when God comes knocking at our door. Because sometimes he comes knocking and the hour seems no more important than any other hour. You know, one of the reasons for that is that we're, we're impressed with showy things. You know, uh, it, it, we like we like shiny objects you know we're like the dog that's supposed to be doing one thing and he keeps seeing a squirrel and chasing the squirrel um, but but we're impressed with showy things and and when it comes to greatness we expect greatness to come clothed in fanfare you know and to come with pomp and circumstance and, and with a flair for the dramatic and a, and a display of panache you know, that we think there should be a parade. If, if a great person shows up, there should be a motorcade. There should be a parade. There should be a band playing. It should be some big event. It should be some major thing that takes place. 
And we anticipate that God, when he comes, he must be impressive and remarkable and exciting and moving when he comes. But you know what? The truth is, he seldom is. He seldom is. It actually makes me think of Elijah in the cave. You probably heard the story. He was hiding in a cave after he ran from Jezebel, after he had already just won a great victory and he ran from Jezebel and he's depressed and Jezebel says she's going to kill him and, and he's hiding in the cave and he thinks he's all alone. He, he says to God, he says, I'm the, I'm the only one that worships you. I'm the only one left. He, he was wrong, but that's what he thought. He was isolated and he was crying out to God. He was desperate for the Lord's presence. And the Bible says in that moment, that a great mighty wind began to blow and it, was, it blew with such force that the Bible says it tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks. I mean, that's quite a wind. But the Lord was not in the wind. Then an earthquake came that, that shook the very earth. I don't know how many, if you've ever been in an earthquake. When we lived out in Reno, uh, we experienced a few earthquakes. That's a very strange feeling when you feel the earth uh, moving underneath your feet and and the earthquake I was in that I've experienced, the ones that I've uh, walked through out there, they were very minor. But, but you just imagine the earth beginning to shake and things cracking and tearing apart. And, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a great fire. I don't know, again, out west they have fire season uh, during the summer when it gets so dry and, and these great fires that consume everything and they're out of control, wildfires and this great fire comes, but again, the Lord was not in the fire. And after all of those massive, those impressive, earth-shattering moments, the big things that you would think, this must be God. Finally, Elijah heard the quiet sound of a gentle whisper. And he immediately realized that he was in the presence of God Almighty. You see... We expect greatness to come clothed, with, clothed in fanfare. But God often comes in a gentle whisper. He doesn't come shouting, He comes whispering. See, our thoughts and God's thoughts about magnitude and significance and greatness, they're all completely different. You know, think about it. Manger and straw, a peasant leading a donkey, a, a woman heavy with a child, a small hotel in a sleepy little town situated way off the main routes of, of commerce and pre-industrial age. Who in the, in the world could recognize God's coming in common things like that? Who could even imagine God showing up in such humble and lowly circumstances? And we often shut him out in our lives, unable to recognize the moment. We miss Him because we're looking for the fire. We're looking for the earthquake. We're looking for the, for the mighty wind. And we miss Him because He comes with a gentle whisper. How often are we not able to appreciate where true greatness really lies? How often do we, do we miss Him because He actually comes as a person, a hungry person coming begging for a meal how often are we unable to see him because we're looking for him among the high and the mighty of this world but he is there among those who are weak and lowly what did jesus say in matthew 25 he told the story of the sheep and the goats we're not going to read the whole parable 
But at one point he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, of uh, of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. How often do we miss him? Because we don't see him in the people around us. We don't see him in the moment. The small moment that seems insignificant. How often do we miss him? Because we're just simply expecting an emotional thrill or another spiritual high uh, or of another altar experience. And yet the truth is we find his, his presence near than ever before. We get when we give a cup of cold, cold water in his name. How often do we miss him because we're waiting for him to do something to us? We're waiting for that moment, that experience. When all the while he's trying to do something through us. We need receptive hearts to recognize God when He comes knocking on our door, recognizing that His presence and His power, listen, it may not look what we expect it to look like. And we miss it because of our preconceived ideas. There's something else there, something beyond preoccupation and something beyond ignorance and and, and missing Him because they didn't understand the importance of the moment. But the third thing is that Jesus was shut out of the end by, by inhospitality. He just simply wasn't welcomed. There were those in Christ's day who looked him over. They listened to him. They heard what he taught. And, and when they sensed what he was really saying, they just curtly said, no, thank you. No, thank you. I've got no room for that. That's not what I want in my life. There was no room in the synagogue at Nazareth they, they cast him out. They actually tried to kill him. There was no room in the temple. I mean, after all, you, you can't overturn the sales tables of the high priest's family concession and expect to have the hospitality of those in power. There was no room in Israel, certainly not for his kind of subversive talk. See, here's the thing. What we don't understand because we've never lived in an occupied nation, but the major problem the people faced in Israel in Jesus's day was how to deliver the nation from the rule of Rome, from this terrible tyranny of Rome, how to free the people from the arrogant tyranny of this dictatorship. And the people were obsessed with this issue. They wanted freedom from Rome. And they may have been divided about how to do it, but they all believed that something had to be done. There was one group, actually one of these men became one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Simon the Zealot. But there was one group called the Zealots and they thought the only way out was to resist, to fight, and to kill. That that was the only way to find freedom. And they were really in a quandary for a while because they saw Jesus, they saw his popularity, they thought maybe this is the man who can lead us to victory. And, And they were wondering if he could possibly be the promised king who would provide the kind of strong leadership for which they, they, they searched. And listen, the truth is there were multiple times that they would have made Jesus king if he had given them the slightest 
uh, inclination or slightest indication of willingness. But the thing was, Jesus was going a different direction. He wasn't there to lead a military coup. He wasn't there to lead the, the masses against Rome. And Jesus saw through the real problem. Jesus knew that hatred was not the proper solution, that trying to kill the Romans was not the answer. And so what did he do? He taught them. He said, listen, here's what you need to do. He said, you need to love people. In fact, I even want you to love your enemy. And if, and if you, a Roman soldier comes to you and he compels you to go a mile, then instead of going just a mile, you offer it to add another mile and go an extra mile for him just on the basis of love. And, 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 and listen, when they heard this kind of talk, the people who wanted to overthrow Rome, they were in no mood to welcome any, anything like that. The last thing they wanted was to love the Romans. You got to be crazy, Jesus. And so they shut him out. That's what it says in John 1.11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. There's no room for his kind. You know, this too is a continuing story. We don't need to belabor the point. We all recognize that too well, that all too well, that even in countries where Christ is loudly proclaimed and loudly praised, even in nations where public holiday is made of his birth, even in lands where Christmas is kept, there's just not much room for Christ. At least not down in the deep currents of life where real decisions are made about real issues. And sometimes in our own lives, we don't make room for him because he calls us to do things that go against the grain in our flesh. And we just shut him out. And we say no, and we make no room. The late David Roberts said that if he could have anticipated Bethlehem, his first temptation would have been to cry out, oh, gentle son of God, don't come here. Don't come into such a world. This is not the place for you. There is no place for someone who cares nothing for money, prestige, or power. You don't fit in here. It will destroy you. This kind of world will crush you, break your heart. Don't come. You don't belong. But then he went on to say that on second thought, as the years roll by, he said, we can't get rid of the haunting realization that Christ is the one who really belongs. We are the misfits whose ugly passions and unholy lives are out of touch with reality. We are the strange ones with distorted images of what humanity was meant to be. The encouragement of Christmas is that the light of Christ is still shining in the dark. And it's also that the, that the future belongs to the light. With the darkness of every tragic human blunder, with the, with the tra darkness of every tragic human action, with things like this war in Israel going on and all the death and destruction that's taking place. Well, with all of that darkness, the contrast of the light grows that much clearer. The light of Christ is, is the real thing and we must make room for Him in our business. We must make room for Him in our politics, in our education, in our homes, and in our personal lives. And frankly, folks, we must do it soon. And I read it cute little story a little while back about a Christmas play and the, the highlight of the play of the Christmas play was was the, the moment where they're going to show the radiance of Jesus the light shining in the darkness and what they had they, they had had a manger 
up there on the stage and they had wired in an electric light bulb into that. And, and, uh, and there was a point, point in the play where, where all the stage lights were going to go off and all the lights in the building were going to go off. And, and the only light that was going to be on was the light in the manger. And it was going to uh, show uh, the brightness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus shining. It was this all planned out. And, and at the appropriate time, all the lights went out in the place. And then, and it was completely dark. And suddenly the silence was broken when one of the shepherds said in a loud, loud stage whisper, Hey, you turned off Jesus. Haven't you been guilty of that? Have you turned off Jesus? Have you ignored his knocking? Has he come knocking on the door of your heart and you've said, not today, there's no room. You know, time does something more than just pass. Time narrows down our chances for some things. You ever thought about that? The longer I'm alive, the more time that passes, the fewer chances, the fewer opportunities, the fewer doors that will that have the opportunity to open in my life ahead of me. That's the tragedy of living a life and just letting time go and letting it slip away without seizing the moment that's in front of us. But that is insistent knocking on the door comes and then it's gone. And we need to catch the urgent note in the knocking and, and quit fooling ourselves with the thought that we can go on year after year after year just being busy. And then at one great moment, we, we, we can, of our own choosing, we, we find the room for Christ. Well, let me tell you something. Here's the reality. We never find room. There's never enough room. We must make room. We have to make a choice. The story of Bethlehem of the Bethlehemian reminds us once again about preoccupation, about being unaware, about inhospitality to God. And the innkeeper calls to our attention the importance of opening the door when the knock comes. I'm here to tell you again, this Christmas season, the knock is coming again. The knock is there again saying, will you make room for me? During this celebration, or will you cover me with all the coats and the furs? Will you bury me with all the traditions and fun and decoration and all of those things? Or will you remember me? Will you make room for Jesus? So what will you do this year? Will you just keep Christmas? Or will you make room? And not just for Christmas, but in your life, in an ongoing nature. Are you just going to go through life? Are you going to let time pass? Are you just going to say, well, maybe later I'll do it in my own timing? But bad news is uh, the Bible says that no man comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him, which means I don't get to go to God when I want. I get to go when He calls me. And He also says in His Word that He will not always strive with man. So there's coming a day when maybe you think you're ready, but the door won't be open. So you don't let time pass. Are we going to do that? Are we just going to live our lives and coast through? Or will we make room? Will we make room? We're going to close today by, I'm asking, they're going to ask the worship team to come back up. We're going to close by, by singing one of my favorite songs that we do. We're going to do the worship song just called Make Room.
And as we sing this song, I'm just encouraging you, whatever you need to do, I'm asking you to respond to the call of God today. And I'm asking you as you sing, make it more than words, but would you make room for Him? If If you don't know Christ as your Savior, open the door and just simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Would you come in? It's no special magical words. There's no right prayer and wrong prayer. Just surrender to Him. If you do know Christ, then would you just go to Him and say, Lord, don't let, don't let the busyness of my life crowd you out. Help me, help me to remember you. Help me to make room for you in my life so that you can do whatever you want to in my life. Not so that I can get you to use your power to change things so I can get my way. But Lord, make room. I'll make room so that you can have your way in me. We're going to sing that song and listen, it doesn't matter. I don't care if you stand, if you sit, if you kneel. I don't care if you come lay down on the altar. It doesn't make any difference to me. I don't think it matters to God. What really matters is the position of your heart. Will you respond to His voice? Will you make room for Him in your life, in your celebration of Christmas, in all that you do? I want you to join the worship team as they sing and let's and and i'll close the service out in just a moment but let's just take a few moments to make this song a prayer and say i will make room for you to do whatever you want to amen let's sing mary beth lead us